You're listening to the music podcast with Neil. The music podcast with Neil. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the music podcast. Uh, we are here in Vienna, people in Sydney, and I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Will Anderson. Ever heard of him? Will, thanks so much for coming by, man. No, that's all right. My pleasure. It's nice to be here. I was just commenting on how lovely this studio is compared to the, you know, hellhole. Can I say shithole? I don't <laughs> well, know. You, what you your, I don't yeah. know what your language requirements yeah. say are. Say whatever on your you podcast. like. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, good, because I probably would have anyway, and then somebody would have had to edit it out. Yeah, no, I, it's fine. I would have felt bad about causing that amount of. Like uh, I think I think our line is like no abusive c bombs. You can say, uh, yeah, okay, you can yeah. say it, but just yeah. not. I wouldn't say it in an abusive way. <laughs> good. I good. don't think. We'll see. Well, it depends who we get on to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Eventually, if we started listing enough people, I might eventually find one of them. Let's not rule it out, but let's just like we'll set the standard of we'll try. Not to. That's the last 20 minutes of the podcast. Yeah, you just bring up names <laughs> until I finally snap and just call them the Seabomb. Uh, unless we actually talk about Emily Seabomb, the swimmer. Yeah, we can then, do that. Yeah. yeah, I can do that. Great then. swimmer. Yeah, that's not fine. a bad person. I mean, I haven't met her. I'm sure she's great. I oh, mean, imagine if she was a ter- yeah, I think with that. Imagine if she was a C. I would have would have thought with that last name, you've got to be a really nice person. Well, you've got to go one way or the other, right? You've it either would, got to it be. It would suck in school, surely. Yeah. Nominative determinism. Do you mm. know what that is? You know, mm-hmm. the, your name determines what your life like right and uh so or the name of something determines you know the way someone behaves i guess if your last name is c-bomb i reckon you're one way or the other you're either super nice or super nasty nothing in between yeah you'd have to be well i mean you know it's thank you for coming by because uh myself and a lot of people are obviously big fans of your podcast philosophy what what is that setup like is that just like in your uh, nothing home? like this <laughs> it's, not, it's not a studio uh no don't have a studio never mm-hmm. had a studio although uh like most of when we started doing TOEFOP, um, which is like the original podcast that Charlie and I started doing, mm. and well, I mean, that's got to be eight years ago or nine years ago, sure. like a long time ago yeah. now. Um, we used to record it in the front room of his, you know, the, like house that he was living in, yep. his rental. And then eventually it moved to my house. Like, mm. and so I have an office out the back of my house that yep. has like a, a, yeah, so we used to record it sort of in a separate space. It was in my office. Yeah. Um, and now I've just uh, moved to Melbourne. And so I've got a separate, again, at the house, got <laughs> yeah. a separate like. Uh, a room in the room. A granny, sure. Yeah, a granny flat. Yeah, sure. Which is my home office, yeah. which uh, will also become the podcast studio. Yeah. But pretty much it's not a studio. It's just like <laughs> occasionally in the middle of the office, I whack some microphones. <laughs> That's about as much as it makes it if, a but studio. But if you're doing this show eight years ago, with, like will you guys have roommates? Like you're talking and then some dickhead just walks in. Go, hey, guys. What's going on here? Well, I mean, anyone who's listened to TOEFOP over the years has heard from our various pets and our various partners. <laughs> or, or probably not various partners, <laughs> probably the same partners, to be honest, in yeah. that period of time. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, so no, a lot of wanders in. Yeah. That's what you get in the early days of podcasting in particular. Yeah. Certainly the dogs, yeah. Charlie's dog, Junior, and, and my two dogs, they, they love the podcast as no. soon as they see us talking out the back they decide they need to come and out and sit on the laps or bark in the background or whatever yeah. so anyone who listens to the podcast is familiar with the dogs and um, <laughs> and yes the occasional walk-in uh i mean occasionally my girlfriend will cameo on the podcast yep. but um only occasionally mm. i remember when tom ballard 
yeah, was yeah, on, yeah. she brought a cheese platter in the middle of it, <laughs> which was, which nice. was yeah. very nice of yeah. her. But that's not a general sort of vibe. It's not like every guest who comes around for a philosophy should expect to get a cheese platter. Well, see, that was the th- I was going to mention that because creepily enough, we had Amy Shark in here like two weeks ago. And Mike, who's never done this before, just goes, oh, hey, guys, I've got some grapes and some strawberries for you. And he just puts this table of food in front of us. We didn't have one during the podcast because, you know, eating in a microphone, that sounds disgusting. It does. It didn't stop Tom and I eating cheese <laughs> during that podcast, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. But, um, you know, Amy was great. She luckily didn't think it was stalkerish. Um, so thanks, Amy. If you're Well, I mean, I think that everybody enjoys, like, being given some... Some nice thing. Of even course, yeah. In general, to a certain degree. Mm. I mean, I suppose it depends on how sus the person giving you the thing is. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I guess you could be like, it would depend on how much he seemed into me as he handed me the grapes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'd be <laughs> like, hang on, have these grapes already been in his mouth? Like, am well, I going like, to later find out? You that have a whole bowl of this pants? shit and you're just like, would you like a strawberry yeah. before we begin? It just, it's a little uncomfortable, but she was cool with it. So. Or, I mean, I'm on quite a lovely couch here. If I was just laying down on this couch and then just occasionally while you were asking a question, he like popped in and just like lowered a strawberry <laughs> into my mouth. I, I don't know. Maybe I'd be fine with that. Maybe I'd get used to it. Maybe then I could only podcast while occasionally being like kind of you yeah, can Cleopatra do it. style. Yeah. <laughs> well, dude, like, what's I mean, what's been happening in the last couple of weeks? Because oh, well, oh was, hang is on, this, what's, is what's this, this? It's not a strawberry. That's a, no, no, it's, no, no, uh, what is what this? Is it? It's an, a Joel. Oh, a Joel. Oh, good. Okay. A sugar-free oh. Joel. Sugar oh, okay. okay. Well, no, they stick to your teeth bad. Yeah, probably really terrible for my garden. Now it feels like you're interviewing Sylvester Stallone. Your audio is not a mess. You might be like getting out of my mouth. Yeah, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> this couldn't possibly. Thanks for nothing, Michael. The worst thing. Um, I mean, what's been happening with you the last couple of weeks? I mean, obviously you've been touring around Will Eagle, which I want to talk about in a second. But oh. I mean, you you did the Melbourne Comedy Festival, right? Yeah. So I just finished eight weeks, the mm-hmm. first eight weeks of the tour. So the tour always starts in Adelaide at the Adelaide Fringe, and then in the next eight weeks after that. So I, I normally do a couple of weeks in Adelaide, and then a week in Brisbane, and then sort of four weeks in in Melbourne. And so with you know some spare a few days off and whatever in between that's essentially what the last eight weeks of my life have been i've been doing the show so i go from having done the show zero times Mm -hmm. to having done it now i don't know like you know 40 times or whatever Mm. so in eight weeks and so that's a pretty interesting period of time because you've been sitting around like thinking about a show and like imagining what it might be and kind of you know putting it together and all those sort of things and then you have this amazing kind of thing where you start doing it mm. and then suddenly you do it like 40 like yeah, 40 times and so by the time you've done something 40 times you are really starting to understand it and be you know it's a so it's a very concentrated way to you know get good at it so that's that's just been the last eight weeks and so now I have a little well not much of a break to be honest from the touring because I've got Perth Comedy Festival next weekend and then um but then I have a little bit of a yeah, kind of while we're doing Gruen, because mm. I got the radio on Gruen and the podcast and whatever. You just, I mean, look, look that's probably already too much stuff. <laughs> yeah. But what we try to do is keep a little bit of the touring away from. So over the 10 weeks that I'm doing Gruen, I think Perth and Canberra might fall into that. But the majority of the rest of the touring I'll do with the show will now be... Yeah, kind of post Gruen when Gruen finishes in early July or whatever. Yeah. I mean, my extensive research tells me that you do Canberra next month. So write that one. Yeah, down. that'd be yeah. about right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think that's so why once we start doing Gruen, like Perth 
one weekend and then Canberra, Canberra like next, four yeah. or five weekend. Yeah. Do, yeah, is, like, yeah. Is Gruen done out of the ABC in, in Sydney? Yeah. Harris okay. Street, Ultimo. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, has been. That place has been my... So when I started doing Glass House, it mm. was still at Ultimo. Yeah. Um, but, sorry, at, um, no, it was at uh, Lane Cove or wherever it was sure. beforehand. Yep. But we only did, I think, one series of the Glass House, maybe 13 episodes mm-hmm. um, over there. And then the whole move happened to... Um, you know, to Ultimo yeah. and um, Triple J was there. Yeah. And so I did six years of Triple J there or five years, sorry, five years of Triple J and six years of Glasshouse there. Yeah. And now I've done, this is our 11th year of doing Gruen mm. there. Um, I got accepted to UTS uh, out of uni because I, I, I mean, sorry, at uni because I, I wanted to do journalism. Mm-hmm. And so I applied as you assume you can still do. I don't know. I'm old. <laughs> yeah. Hi, people. I think well, that's I'm how it works, now. yeah. But like when, it, when, when I was g- going to uni, the idea was you applied for your top choice in Melbourne and yeah. then as a backup, you'd apply for your top choice because I was from Victoria. Sure. Uh, then I applied for my top choice in some other places because you could still apply in other states, yeah. right? And so I applied to UTS Journalism, RMIT Journalism and Uni of Canberra mm-hmm. Journalism. And... I can't remember if I got into Sydney or not, to be honest. Um, but I got into Canberra and I decided by then that I wanted to go to Canberra because I got into RMIT, which was originally what I was. So my big plan was I'd go to RMIT, go mm. to Melbourne with all my mates and you know live in a share house with all my mates and sure. I'd go to RMIT and do journalism. But by the time that it then came around and my office started coming in and I did okay at school, like I did well enough that I was getting the offers, suddenly I was like, oh, I've got a choice. <laughs> and suddenly I was like, maybe I don't want to go to Melbourne. Maybe I'd actually like to go somewhere that um, isn't where my mates are. And maybe I'd like to go somewhere where I can sort of have an opportunity to meet some new people and mm. establish my own identity and work out what it is that I really like and want and outside, you know, because I mean, so much of who you are, particularly at high school, when you come from the country like me, you've known the same people all your life. Yeah. And so much of who you are is formed by the fact that those people have known you for all your life. So the idea of kind of going to Melbourne and living in a share house with those same people, even though the people I was going to live with are still friends of mine today. So like, you know, not, it wasn't like I was done with those friends. (laughs) Yeah. It was just, I was done with them being my only friends. Sure. And so... I, I can't remember, I literally just can't remember whether I chose between Sydney and Canberra or I didn't get into Sydney and I got into Canberra. I can't remember. Um, but if I had gone to UTS, I literally would have spent my entire life on that one fucking block. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, literally, yeah. like, UTS is next to the You'd be the, the guy organising the 10-year reunions and the 20-year reunions. And when I worked at um, uh, Southern Cross Osterio when yeah. Limo and I were doing the afternoon show at Triple yeah. M, like, it's just up the road. Yeah. I was like... Man, like all my everyone, jobs yeah. are like literally in this like one block. Yeah. I mean, without making this like an episode of This Is Your Life, yeah. I mean, when you're talking about how you wanted to go to, to uni for journalism, at what point then did you kind of go, oh, wait, actually, you know what? I want to do stand-up. I want to do radio. Where did the journalism part kind of just go, ah, fuck that. I'll come back well, later. Well, I mean, this this will sound weird to the young people who listen to these podcasts, mm. but um, there was a time when stand-up comedy was not a feasible (laughs) (laughs) job opportunity. It might seem silly now. I mean, there was a time where journalism was a better uh, job (laughs) idea than uh, stand-up comedy. Uh, When I started doing comedy, it was running away to join the circus. And so I was a kid from a farm, you know, like, so the idea that, you know, I would 
yeah, get accepted into university, but I would like go away and do stand up comedy for a living. Mm. Was just it was would have been I would have been disowned from my family. Yeah. I was the first person in my family to graduate high school to get accepted to university. There was no doubt in my mind that I was going to go off and study something and doing something. Now, what did I think at the time? Mm. Very hard for me to tell you the answer to that because what I've learned as I've got older is so much of, if I told you what I thought at the time, I'd actually be telling you what I now think I thought at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And that, that answer is so much reframed through who I am now sure. and what I've become. Yeah. And so you self-mythologize these things. Yeah. So in my head, if I'm, if I'm being completely honest, I think that I always thought that I wanted to do comedy, yeah. but I just didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know what comedy was and I didn't know how you were meant to do it. Yeah. I knew that Melbourne had a comedy festival and there was a bit of a scene there, but it certainly wasn't something that at high school careers in, you know, sale that the careers teacher offered as an option. No, yeah. There was nobody saying, hey, well, if you want to be a comedian, like you could say to people now, hey, if you want to be a comedian, okay, great. Um, do some open mic, um, yeah. maybe do a festival, work up a show, you know, start a podcast, Get a do YouTube. some clips on YouTube, yeah, like sure. any of these sort of things are ways that you can do it. But none of those things existed back then, you mm. know. Or the comedy festival was only... What, so it's the 30th year now and I've done 23 of them. So, yeah, you know, wow. the, the, when I went to uni, the Comedy Festival had only done four years, four years, five years. Mm. So, the you know, the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Yeah. So any of these things that we now go, well, this is how you would do this. And all these things that you would now see if you're a young comedian, you go, oh, well, of course I could be a comedian. Like, mm. and I could get a job in radio or TV or mm. writing or writing for someone else or doing stand-up and I can do any sort of stand-up. My stand-up doesn't have to be any traditional sort of stand-up. I can... Yeah, do uh, all these things within the the world of comedy. None of those things really existed, or if they did existed, if they did exist, it wasn't a matter of looking it up on, you know, YouTube sure. or you know being able to download a podcast. It was about you know a cassette tape that somebody was passing around of you know some comedian from the states who mm. you know, or it was having to sit up the back of these rooms or having to go and see things to go and search out like you know different styles of things and more experimental things. So at the start, it was just I was interested. I went and saw stuff. Mm. So every time there was something in Canberra when I was at uni, I would just go to what it was. I liked stand-up. You know, yeah. if there was a someone at our uni bar at lunchtime, if Triple J were doing their breakfast show live from the, you know, cafeteria. Yeah. If I mean, on my first day or my second day, I was talking to Helen Razor about this the other day and – I saw her and Mikey Robbins. It was like definitely my first week. It was during O Week at uni and they came and did the breakfast show from Canberra and I'd never even heard Triple J. Because sure. like Triple J wasn't national then. Yeah, right. Like where yeah. I was from, yeah. there was no Triple J. So mm. literally the first time I ever heard Triple J was live. And the reason I went was I'd heard of Mikey Robbins because yeah. he was like, yeah, he was a person who I saw, had seen in like theatre sports or on tally on the ABC course, yeah. being funny. So I went because I liked comedy, you know, and sat there and was like, wow, like, What's this? This is a job? <laughs> yeah. Little did I know that, like, you know, in my O week at university, literally I went to a class that was of the job that I would later do for, you yeah, know, wow. five years. But yeah. this is the thing I always say to people about these experiences. I didn't go to uni. I didn't go to that thing that day going, one day I will host the Triple Day. <laughs> yeah. Show. Like, I went because I was like, oh, this might be fun. This might be interesting. Yeah. I mean, just the way life worked out is that I ended up. That was probably the thing that I did at uni that yeah. was probably the most no, see, I, know, I, I, useful I did, and informative. I did a journalism degree, and like it, they just said, "Oh, you know, it'll get you good marks if you go do community radio." I was like, "That's awesome!" Like, 
radio sounds fun. Like I don't have to write essays doing that. And that's <laughs> kind of how that started. Yeah. Um, but actually I wanted to ask you about like, what, what is your, I guess, perspective on the Australian comedy scene right now? Like when you think about acts like Lane and Woodley, who have made a comeback all the way to someone like Claudio Doherty, who, you know, lived five minutes away from this studio a couple of years ago. And now she's living in LA. She's on love on Netflix and she's a big deal. How do you see the current climate of, of standups? Uh, I mean, I think the Australian comedy industry has always, well, I mean, for the last 10 or 15 years has been as strong as anywhere in the world. And mm. look, I mean, I don't think that's a an empty boast I, because I think that you see it every time an Australian goes somewhere else. Like mm. it's no, I mean, the amount of Aussies that have been in the, you know, the Perrier shortlist, yeah, of the thousands of shows at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival every single year. Every single year we almost get an Aussie on that short mm. list, you know, um, it, either on the newcomer list or on the actual, you know, best show list, you know. You've seen shows like Hannah Gadsby's show, you yeah, know, go course. from being, you know, Melbourne International Comedy Festival show to winning the Edinburgh Award to now doing a month, you know, off-Broadway and, you know, touring all over the US and, um, you know, You've seen it with Tim Minchin, you've seen it with Sam Simmons, you've seen it with Claudia, you've seen it with a whole bunch of other acts, you know, whether yeah, Adam Hill's in the UK and Ronnie, you know, you could, Ronnie Chang yeah. on The Daily Show and all these sort of things. But but also just in a stand-up sense, like these sort of acts have been doing well. Australian acts, you know, Montreal Just for Laughs and at Edinburgh and places like this have been really doing very well for a long time. Mm. You know, so... Um, I've always thought it was pretty world class, and part of that is because we're one of the rare places where everyone, yeah, well, not everyone, but because of the size of the country and because of the country's comedy infrastructure, particularly with all the festivals in each of the different states now, and you know, nearly every major city now has its own, yeah, pretty established and thriving comedy scene. Mm. Um, you also have this thing where, yeah, most of us are writing a new show a year. Mm. Which worldwide, that's insane. Even the UK comics, like to the capacity that we do it, uh, don't do it. In the, the you, you rarely find someone who's writing a new show every year. Well, I think, might... I think Michael McIntyre is coming here next year, and he's bringing out the show that he started last year in England. So that's what uh, over two years of the same of the same gig. Yeah, and maybe even more for some people. Mm. You know, and that's partly to do with size, right? Mm. So, you know, if you write a new our new show in America, you can tour it to people who've never seen it for three years. Yeah. Working all the time. UK, you can probably tour it at least for two years. <laughs> but, and then by the time you start, you know, Michael McIntyreing it or, you know, uh, Jimmy Carring it overseas yeah. or whatever, you know, you might get an extra six months or a year out of that. Yeah. So you might be going through a new show every three years. But here, realistically, if you want to do the festivals every year, you need to have a new show every year. Now, not every comedian's doing that, obviously, but, but a lot are. Because for a lot of people, that's the best way to build your career. Mm. So what you tend to find is when they go worldwide, Australians have already developed a reasonable work ethic. You know, in America in particular, the old days, you know, you'd have comics who'd be doing the same 20 minutes for, well, isn't like, for you know, Isn't Seinfeld's years. mantra like you can do the same material for as long as you want? Well, and the other thing is you will actually see people develop, you know, really brilliantly polished material because of that. Mm. And, you know, there is some value in that. Like, there's some value in taking your time to get something right. Sure. Uh, but I think that the reason Australia has been... Part of it has just been literally because if you want to do the festival every year, then you have to, um, you know, come up with a lot of new, new material because the size of the country is such that 
you can't bring the same show back because people will go and see other things. So what was your desire then, I guess, to, to move to LA and, and start circuiting there? I mean, what was really cool is that you kind of conquered Australia, for lack of a better word, and then you kind of just went to LA. And I think you, there's no reason you would remember this, but we did a phone interview about two years ago. And you mentioned that you, you went to LA and it was kind of like starting over again, working to fresh audiences who, who didn't know who Will Anderson was. Yeah, well, I mean, it's very hard to do that here. You mm. know, I find it incredibly difficult. I, I do Adelaide Fringe, and those two weeks are essentially trial shows. They're not. I mean, like, I like to get the show hopefully to a point where... But if I were in a place where people didn't know me, I would have a greater capacity to trial my show. Sure. Right? Yeah. And that's what America is or, or is and was and, you know, hopefully will continue to be. It's a capacity for me to take my work out to an audience that aren't bringing anything else to the table. Mm -hmm. So I can get clean reads on stuff. You know, like it's very hard for me to get a clean read on stuff here because you're always dealing with whatever level of people being aware of you mm. that's in the mix, right? I probably said this at the time because it's the thing that <laughs> yeah. I, bring, I bring up when people say things like this. But Chris Rock, when he's trialing material, has a way of doing it where he um, – He'll go to a club unannounced and he'll read the jokes, the routines off a piece of paper. Wow. He won't do he won't perform them. Mm. Because he knows that once he starts performing them, like he can make pretty much anything work. You know, Chris Rock could Chris Rock <laughs> yeah. you know, anything. Sure. And make it, you know, work as a bit. Yeah. And there is an element of that that I can do. You know, like when I do my improv shows, a lot of them are just kind of bluster over quality material, you know, like um so yeah, some of it's performance, some of it's, you know... So you kind of want to get the material right before you add those other things in. But if you're in a place where you can't go and try something without anybody knowing who you are, um, A, it doesn't give you the capacity to try those things, but B, I think what it does also is that it stops you from taking really, really big risks because what if I go down to the friend in hand where everybody knows who I am mm. and I try something that's really risky and... The idea of if it is really risky, it means that there's a possibility it couldn't work at all. Mm. And then 80 people walk away and went, yeah, I saw Will Anderson. He was shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas if I'm in a place where people are just go, I saw some guy try something and it was shit, mm. who cares? Sure. Right? Yeah. So it can even stop you from taking the risks that you would like to and hope to make with your material. So I think it it was certainly important for me for that sort of regard to go, if I want to be able to try things... You know, it's very hard for me to try any of this new show because it's like one whole story mm. and it's about something that you need to know a lot of the details that are revealed in the yeah. show to understand. So the other thing is it was about something that happened, like a real life thing that was in the news and stuff. So if I suddenly just go down to a club and start trialing a bit of the story and, you know, practicing it or, or trying to work out what my attitude to something is, like because some of these bits you're like, Am I being angry about this or maybe a better position will to be to be this about this or to have this emotion to this thing? But sometimes you don't know that without trying all those three emotions to see which works better for the thing. Yeah. I don't want to like rock down on the comedy store, yeah, do this thing about, you know, and like this happened to me on a plane and I was angry and people go, like, yeah, someone go away from that and go, oh, this is a guy screaming at really me. Angry about. And I was like, well, actually that's not how the, it's ended up in the show. Yeah. But that might be a step in me working that out yeah and so uh you know obviously being well known brings with it some real advantages uh -huh. um the first one being that um 
you know that when you're writing something that people are going to see it. Mm. I always say that to people at a festival. It's like the, the real I, – I, if I sit down to work hard on a show, the thing that I know is that my hard work will be justified. Right, yeah. you know that that there are a bunch of people who are going to go and come and see the show, and so if I sit down and and write hard and work hard, then those people who are coming to see the show, mm. you know, they will enjoy that hopefully, or at, the, at least they'll see something that I've worked very hard on. I'll get to show it to people. There is a whole bunch of other people who write in the hope that that will be the case. You know, they're working equally as hard on what they're doing, but they're writing it hoping that mm. someone will see it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's a very privileged position to have to to know that people are going to come and see it, right? Yeah. Like a certain amount of people are yeah. going to come and see it, you know. And so it's a lot harder to write something when you don't know if anyone's ever going to see it. Imagine having to put in nine months of work on a joke mm. and not know if anyone was even yeah. going to see it. You could write the best joke of all time and maybe no one will come and see your show. Yeah. I mean, that's a much harder thing than what I have, which is I'll work that hard on something, but I also know at the end of it, you know, there's going to be thousands of people who come out to see it. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Chris Rock before. Did you see a lot of these guys like your Chris Rock, your Dave Chappelle? You know, Chappelle just released a, that third Netflix special and 80% of it was him just talking, like talking shit. Like you can tell, you can kind of get the vibe what was written, what wasn't, but a lot of he was just talking to the audience just, and then just making jokes out of that. Do you learn from that or is that just, that's their style, works for them, whatever? Uh, I mean, you interesting when i first started out i definitely like i mean there's no i mean i guess there probably is now comedy schools and you know these sort of things but you know or you can kind of put together your own comedy school because there's so much stuff on the internet and so many podcasts you can listen to mm. where people talk about comedy and i think that's part of the reason why a lot of young people are so good you know you can you can quickly learn a lot about what it is but at the same time some of it you only learn just by doing it. You mm. know? Um, I think that when I was younger, I used to see people that I wanted to be like and I would, yeah, I think that you would. You'd watch it and go, how is he doing this? Yeah. What can I learn from this? Like Chris Rock obviously – repeats like yeah part of his thing is repetition right is there an element of that repetition that i use in my work yeah not in the same way as he does but definitely that's something that you know there's little elements of you know saying things again or repeating a premise or whatever that yeah probably you know originally you know were chris rock influenced and um you know there's ways that definitely that i my storytelling that is very influenced by Billy Connolly, you know, like the way that he would weave seemingly unrelated things, you know, mm. together and tie them together. I used to love that. And that's certainly something that, you know, is kind of a bit of a trademark of my work. Mm. Um, so early on you would see people and go, oh, I like this bit of what they do and I like this bit of what this other person does and whatever. I think the longer you do it, the less interested you are in watching people who do things the way that you do it mm. because, A, you don't want to, like, accidentally pick up anything, you know, um, because if you see a lot of stuff, you know, it, sometimes it's hard to know, 
if you're sitting down writing something, you know, like an idea pops into your head, you go, well, did that pop into my head or did, have I seen or heard that <laughs> yeah. somewhere else and, you know, on a podcast or... Well, there was a know, massive con- controversy for a while, like people were accusing Amy Schumer of stealing bits, right? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think you've ever... I've, I, I, I bet you can't find a comedian who hasn't been accused yeah. of stealing something at some stage. And most of it's probably, myself included, yeah. and uh, most of it's probably common idea stuff. Sure. In general, it tends to be that sort of thing of going... Oh, we both had the same joke about uh, airplane 72 bird. virgins in, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, airplane yeah, bird, yeah, yeah, the black box recorder. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Because there are certain jokes yeah. that are in that. And certainly in this show, um, because some of it's set on an airplane, mm. and a lot of people have made jokes about things on airplanes. So I had to be very conscious at all times to be going, let's make sure that this is 100% your unique take on what this is because yeah. I don't have time to – Google every fucking joke about airplanes <laughs> yeah. that's ever been made to make sure that I'm not making one of those yeah. ones. Um, but what I tend to do now more as well is I don't find that comedy relaxing to watch mm. because what happens is if it's someone who is a bit like what you do, your brain just automatically starts see- seeing what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, you can't. In- so what I tend to find now is my comedy tastes have probably changed a bit, which is. I love going to see comedy that is very not like my comedy because mm-hmm. I find it much easier to. You mentioned Lionel Woodley. I loved their show at the festival uh, because it's nothing like what I do. It's sure. two people, a lot of it's physical, mm. you know, like, you know, so I can just kind of switch off my comedy brain yeah. and enjoy it. Same as like my favorite show at the festival this year was Anne Edmonds' Helen Badu show. Yeah, that's. It's just one of those crazy, shows yeah. where, you know, there's so many times during that show that. I was like, I mean, I saw it three times and uh, there were so many times during that show that I was like, I know this is funny now because we're all laughing, <laughs> but I don't know how you ever imagined that this was going to be funny. Yeah. Like it is funny. Now that I see it, it's funny. Yeah. But how did you in your office or your bedroom or wherever it is you conceived of this know that this was going to be funny? So I like, you know, Sam, seeing Sam Simmons or, you know, Edo or someone who's doing something a bit outside the area of what it is mm. that I do so that I can kind of switch off my brain and actually just enjoy it. Yeah. But the other thing is, you know, it's not like I'm ever, yeah, you feel safe as well. Yeah. Because you're like, well, it's not like I'm ever going to suddenly, you know, have a Sam Simmons <laughs> yeah, line sure, yeah. in my show. You yeah. know, suddenly in the middle of my, you know, <laughs> plain conversation, I'm smashing Doritos into a stranger's yeah. chest. And I'm like, hang on, this might not be <laughs> my bit. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's, it's really cool because... I mean, there's a good segue to talk about Will Eagle because obviously the show is about uh, what happened last year, obviously the plane incident, um, you know, and it's it's really cool because generally when this kind of stuff happens, particularly with comedians, when things like that happen, it's a very touchy subject, but you've just gone, now fuck that, let's make a show about it. You've made something that really wasn't funny into something that is incredibly funny. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope <laughs> that, that that's the point. Yeah, and I think that it, that it has been what's happened. It took me a while to get there. Yeah. Um. Well, I, I, I mean, I think I kind of knew at the time. It was a pretty fucking awful thing to go through, to be honest. And But I do think at the time that I was aware that I had been presented with something unique mm. because I had a brand new story, which is exciting, right? Yep. As a comedian, you know, particularly, you know, 23 shows in like I am, it's fair to say that, you know, you use up a lot of 
what what's happened to you and mm. something exciting doesn't necessarily happen to you yeah, yeah. so so i knew i had that but i also had something that i think was almost like a perfect comedy topic because mm. it had various different beats to it uh which was good it wasn't just even though it was one story it had you know kind of a lot of different sort of moments in the one story it had genuine stakes, which is a hard thing to actually create in comedy. Sure. Because like a lot of the time, you know, you've got to create stakes, but I'm the person who's actually creating the stakes, right? Mm. Um, and then I think what was probably the greatest gift of all was it had all the scandal of a real thing, but I got cleared of it all, which meant that I was going to be able to be uh honest about and probably maybe more honest about everything that happened because I wasn't going to have to lie about anything or not say something because there was some sort of sure. legal thing or that I was trying to protect. I think it would have been a lot harder if there was like something at the heart of it that I couldn't talk about or that I needed to reframe in a... I think the show comedically might not have worked if it was me having done something and then me writing a show to kind of almost defend myself. Yeah. I was lucky that it turns out that I hadn't done anything. So then I can almost do the opposite of that, which is lean into the drama and stakes of what felt like was happening. Yeah. So, which is probably a more fertile sort of comedy area than it would have been the other way around. So, I think I recognised at the time that I probably had the ingredients or the opportunity to make something really good, yeah. but it then took a very long time to actually work out how to turn that into something good. Does it feel like, cause like you know, when you talk about when it happened, obviously it's not a funny thing. In those initial stages, do you do you panic a little bit? Do you think like people are going to think I'm crazy? I'm going to be I'm, this story's going to be spun and make me look like a nutcase, or do you just kind of just take it all in and just think you know what? Let's just take some time to myself and. We'll see what happens from here. I mean, I guess I probably did think about some of those things. Mm. Um, probably not in, I don't know. To the like, that extreme, sure. Probably not in that way, probably, but in different ways. Mm. It's more like, you know, like funnily enough, it's actually probably other things. Like I was worried, you know, that my parents thought maybe that, yeah, as in like until it all got cleared up, like and yeah. it was – like it got all cleared up pretty quick by the airline and the cops. But, yeah. But the truth of it is that they don't give you like when the cops clear you or when the airline clears you, they don't give you like a written <laughs> assessment of what actually happened that yeah. you can send to your parents. Right? Or even something like we fucked up, not Will's problem. Yeah. Right. They don't go by blow by blow and so they just go, "No, you're fine. Yeah. You're fine to fly, or yeah. you're fine to go on with your business." Like, yeah. That's essentially it, right? Mm. So, I. You worry that, like, you know, I mean, because the way it gets reported and stuff, you know, you're like, oh, I don't want my parents to think that I'm, you know, being some dick to strangers. That that would disappoint them. Mm. And it would disappoint me that they thought that that was the case. Um, So when uh, this dude who was sitting nearby wrote a letter to the editor and kind of, yeah, did do that thing, did, you know, did a blow-by-blow description Mm. of what had happened and how I'd, I guess the big relief was that I had that to send to my parents. 
Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, sure, I, yeah. Re- I remember that being genuinely the bit where I was like, oh, great. Thank you, stranger. Yeah. Because now I can at least send this to, to mum and go, look, see? You know how, <laughs> so, I'm you know not how, crazy, mum, see? You know how yeah. I called you and yeah. I said I hadn't done anything wrong and you reassured me because you're my mum? Yeah. Uh, he is a complete stranger saying that I also didn't do I, Well, I can't right, imagine so. Mr. and Mrs. Anderson call you and say, Will, what the fuck have you done? Oh, no, no, no. And I talk about calling them in the show. That's one of the stories in the show is mm. like how they reacted to when I called them. But um, I, but that's not the point. Like, yeah, of course. The point being, yeah, they were great. And, yeah. they would, and if I had done something, they would have been great. Yeah. But the problem was, and I t- this is one of the themes of the show is, I'm a professional storyteller. You know, I'm mm. a, a liar by trade. You know, I change facts to make them more convenient or more funny or more interesting all the time. So the truth of it is that no one's going to believe my version of the truth of it. Mm. So in a situation like this, what you realize is that you're not really trustworthy. Mm. Like, so I could tell you what happened, but... Uh, that's why, your why version would of events. You believe me? Sure. I make shit up all the time. Yeah. And so the show kind of deals with that a bit, which is that idea of, you know, objective truth, someone else's truth versus, you know, your own perception of truth. And yeah, look, I mean, and this is a show, by the way, as mm. well. Like, you know, it's a seven, well, an 85 minute show at the moment, but a 70 to 85 minute show, depending on the night, um, that made out of 30 hours that happened in my life. So. Mm. To tell a story like that, you're going to have to change some things, you know, like, mm. you know, there's a moment where I'm, you know, taking a photo of one thing and they call my flight. Well, they didn't. <laughs> there was 40 minutes in between yeah, that where sure. I walked around the airport, but I couldn't think of anything funny about my <laughs> walk around the airport. So now yeah. they called my flight while I was doing the last thing. Yeah. I mean, that's storytelling and that's my job. But there was a, there's a conflict at the heart of that where you realize when some shit goes down. Mm. I, yes, I have the capacity to spin it my own way, but also you're not a very trustworthy or believable person to start with. So I must admit that I, it was one of the thing that probably bothered me the most was that people who were close to me might have thought that I had behaved like an asshole. Mm. And as soon as I had some independent sort of corroboration that I hadn't mm. I didn't mind too much about any of the other stuff yeah that was the only thing that was really important to me was that those who were close to me knew that what, that, what people who don't know you think of you yeah is something that you would drive yourself crazy and that's and your hands, to control. Yeah. yeah you can't control it anyway mm. people are thinking good bad and indifferent things about you all the time mm. and a lot of the time it's based on like I've even had people who like me <laughs> you know it'd be based on things that aren't right yeah. you know like, people come to my shows thinking I'm Adam Hills. Like, you know, like... <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Do you have to clear I'm not Adam, by the way. Well, well I mean, I'll take their money first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. A couple, yeah. You know, I mean, the point being that you can't really control what the broad, you know, wider group of people, you know, the world thinks of you. Mm. But I think that probably the thing at the heart of this that would have been the most troubling to me if there hadn't been sort of an independent corroboration of my version of what happened. Mm. If it had just come down to people having to rely on my version of what happened, I think it would be a, a very different show to what it is as well because I've had the confidence to tell the story mm. how I thought it happened because someone else backed it up that that's sure. how it happened. Yeah. If 
if it had just been up to me, yeah, I think that perhaps some of the parts of the show I wouldn't have put in because I would have felt they were self-serving or whatever if it was only my version of it. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. How long do you think, I mean, because you, you mentioned that initially it took you a while to kind of overcome what happened and, and make a show about it. How long were you talking, you know, like the next day after it happened, if I said to you, hey, Will, you should make a show about this, well, you would have said, get fucked. I um, talk about this a little bit in the show, but it's not giving too much away, which is... No spoilers. And, and people who um, uh, listen to my podcast know anyway, which is I went through a period of time last year where I couldn't sit down for three months. Mm-hmm. I hurt my back so badly that I couldn't sit down for three months. And it was... I won't give it away, but it was pretty much immediate immediately following what happened. Wow. Okay. I won't give away how it happened, but yeah. it's in the show. Uh, and so pretty much immediately following what happened, I had three months where I couldn't essentially, I could stand up or I could lay down, but I couldn't do anything in between without major pain or major medication. And mm. So we were doing Gruen at the time. So I was getting like steroid injections in my spine. So sure. I could like sit down at, you know. And you've got great posture on Gruen as well. <laughs> it's incredible. And uh <laughs> I talk about all that and some plans, some other plans they have in the show. And yeah, uh, but essentially, apart from that, I had three months at home, not being able to do anything. Fuck. And during that period, I was when your phys- there's a major link between physical, um, you know, physical tr- pain and uh, mental pain. Yep. You can get quite bad depression from serious physical pain. And I've normally got pretty good like state of mind, but having gone through quite a traumatic experience like I'd gone through and then it being combined with a crippling physical ailment yeah. and then I wasn't sleeping properly and I couldn't just do normal things. Like you'd be ama- It's amazing how little you enjoy television and eating and just normal things when you can't sit down to do them, you know, mm. like um, let alone, you know, everything else in your life that's affected by it. And so during that time I was having a pretty dark time in general. Yeah. And so what I was doing was every time one of the you know when you thought your mind a million times is replaying every moment of like that's what it would do it would just go back over every single moment of the day yeah and it would go if i just changed this or if i'd just done this or if i just got a different flight or Mm. if i'd just done this or if i'd just oh no sat down in my seat or if i'd just done this or if i'd just done this or if i hadn't had that you know extra this or if i hadn't done this and you yeah so what would happen is that went on would I'd be started, I'd start to be reminded of some of the more ridiculous bits of that day. You know, mm. as you're trying to go back over, like I could change this or I could change this. Yeah, you start to go, oh, that's kind of quite funny that thing. Yeah, and now yeah. that I think about that thing, like that's quite interesting as well. And so what I would do is I would start to just make a note. I yep. would just make a note of every time one of those things occurred. I mean, there's a major part in the show about me not um, – well, actually, I won't give it away because it's fun, but there's a <laughs> just a, something I was wearing clothing-wise when I got patted down, you know, for example. So you start to, like, realise – and so instead of it all being like, oh, all this happened, you start to kind of remember, I oh, remember when he was patting me down and that thing happened or remember yeah. when, like, he went to put the handcuffs on me and I put my hands the wrong way. And yeah. like, you start to remember – the moments within the bigger thing yeah. that are interesting, right? And so I would just make notes. I would just make notes and notes. And I didn't really at the time have a necessarily a plan for them. But there was a point where I got to a, probably about a month or two into that where I was like, you know what, this is 
this is probably going to be a show. I didn't realize necessarily that it was going to be the whole show, but I knew at that point that it was probably going to make up a fair bit of the show. So I would say probably about six weeks, about six wow, weeks. Okay. I would say about six weeks after it happened, I yeah. was like, I really started to think, okay, this might be, you know, what, what like, the show is going to be. What is it about comedians and and some sort of controversy? Like, you know, I think you tweeted the other day, some, a headline like, you know, multiple drug charges at dance party. Like, sure, that's expected. But when you see a headline like Dave Chappelle flees to South Africa, people, it's like people associate funny people with being funny. So when something serious happens, it's like, that's fucked up. That person must be unstable. Like, why is that? Uh, I cannot answer that question. <laughs> I, I don't know the answer. You would have to ask somebody else. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't tend to try to think about it too much. And the other thing is that, like, this is all just nonsense, you know? It's yeah. all just pretend. None of it really matters. Mm. Like, you know, and this is what these things teach you, right? You can care as much or as little about these things as you want. It surprises people that I've never read any of the media around it or, mm. like, seen anything to do with it because it all happened while I was, you know, being arrested and, and I didn't go out of my way to seek any of it out. Sure. And so I've not seen it at all. So occasionally, to this day, you haven't even read one article. Not read one. I mean, you lived it. Why the fuck you need to? Well, but also, I don't need to. The show's not about, of course, other people's because none of. If I were seeing it, if it was an important part of the show, but it wasn't Mm. because they confiscated my phone. I'm in prison. I have to go to a uh, show that night. Like, so uh, it's all happening (laughs) while something else is happening to me. So you have an awareness of it in the show, but. I didn't have an awareness of it at the time mm. and I had no desire to go back and like see what people were saying afterwards. Sure. And when I was writing the show, if I'd gone, oh, the show needs me to know what it was, then I probably would have. I wouldn't have minded, but I didn't need to. Like I hadn't ruled it out when I started like writing the show that I would go. Mm. Um, I'm not even sure I've been getting the tweet right uh, <laughs> because I, I talk about the tweet I sent. I've never looked it up to say, I think I've, no one's corrected me. So yeah. I think I'm getting it right. But yeah. literally I was like, when I was doing the trial shows, I was like, I should um, look up to see if that's actually what I did say in the tweet. And I've, I've done like 40 shows and I've never looked it up. So I may be you deserve, getting that wrong. You deserve brownie points for still doing the show that night. Like you would think after what happened that day, you were not in the right mindset to go on stage and make people laugh. Well, that's, uh, so the show is kind of about that. So the, yeah. there's kind of two back, Two aspects of the show, which is a funny thing happened to me on the way to the show, up until the show. Yeah. And then there's sort of like some not so funny things happened to me after the show. The Mm. whole show takes place in 30 hours from when I left home in Sydney to go to Wagga Wagga to when I got back to Sydney the next day. That's the whole show exists in that time period. And it's Mm. really two distinct thoughts. A funny thing happened on the way to the show. Here's some not so funny things that happened afterwards. Yeah. And that's all based on what actually happened that night which is, you know, the show started with me saying a funny thing happened to me on the way to the show. And people can see that. That's just, that's mm. online. People, yeah. f- people filmed it. People can see the first 10 or 15 minutes of that show that night because uh, it was filmed and people posted it online. Yeah. I've not watched it again. I didn't even watch that. Mm. When I first sat down to write the show, I was like, oh, I probably should at least watch that. <laughs> That'll be good. But I was like, I just don't think I need to. Yeah. I don't think that's for me. That happened yeah. for me at the time. And I have my memories of how it all happened. But mm. I don't really need to go back and revisit that. But it's all there for other people to do. You know, yeah. like it needs to exist in a world where people can go and like, you know, 
I, I, I say in the show, I said, and so I sent a tweet, and here's what the tweet said. And I said, I'm embarrassed to say this, but you could Google it anyway. <laughs> what they don't tell them is, I haven't Googled it. I may <laughs> actually not be saying it right. I think I am. Like, I think I am saying that, but I don't honestly have not checked. So yeah, fuck. Can we confirm that you are your own tweeter? There's no publicist tweeting for Will Anderson? Well, I mean, that'd be convenient. <laughs> it wouldn't. That'd get me out of some trouble <laughs> occasionally, but no, nah, no, nah, it's all me. And, yeah. you know, I, I talk about in the show that it's the first tweet I ever erased. And, um, and the reason for that is like that normally I don't like to erase things. I said, I've got in trouble for heaps of things over the journey and some justifiably and some completely unjustifiably. But um, uh, I'm not a person who believes in erasing your history just because it's uncomfortable. Mm. I'm a person who believes that, yeah, we're all going to fuck stuff up along the journey and it's good to show, hey, here's how I fuck something up. Or here's how something fucked up, mm. or uh, whatever. And now here's what that has taught me. Or here's why I, I always I say to people, say, you know, I believe heaps of stuff differently to what I would have. Yeah, I mean, I'll get, just give you a nice practical example so you can understand it. Like in the early days of uh, Tofop, our other podcast, yeah. that Charlie and I did, we used to joke quite a lot about, you know, going to prison and prison, you know, men in prison and you know that sort of generic sort of. Shtick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like stuff that we would never do now. Yeah. Like never. Like all, and we wouldn't find it funny to go. Mm. I think we live in a world now where you're like the idea of like a, a man being raped in prison. We've hopefully moved to a time where we understand that that is not a comedic idea. That mm. is like, you know, that's a horrible idea and it isn't funny or comedic. But it would be dishonest to go back and just like erase those episodes yeah. because they um contain something that at the time we thought was fine but now we don't i'd much rather you know be able to have this conversation and go hey you know when we first did this this was something that we didn't understand yeah. you know was problematic in the way that we now understand yeah. it and here's how i came to that understanding and here's why we don't do that anymore yeah i think that's a much better way to do it normally yeah well, that's crazy as well because like i think two nights ago i was on, i was watching netflix and eddie murphy's delirious is on there Right. We're just considered, you know, one of the great standout <laughs> specials. The first seven minutes, <laughs> yeah, the first seven minutes is just him dropping the f bomb. Ah, uh, yeah, and, and talking about how yeah, gay people, other, gay people that don't look at my ass. Yeah, the yeah. other f bomb, the really offensive yeah. f bomb. Yeah, and like yeah. just casually dropping the f bomb, and people are laughing. But this is what 84, 85? Oh, yeah, but I mean, but you you don't have to go back that far. I mean, look, I mean, both. Yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, he was an 18, 19 year old kid when he shot those specials, mm. and he is literally 30 years ago or 35, mm. like, you know, whatever it is, like, mm. you know, literally. So, um, but the truth of it is that someone as smart as Patton Oswalt or, yeah, these sort of people were casual, yeah, David Cross would casually, you know, use the word retarded, which I'm only saying now to, you know, like as a... Provide context. Right, you yeah. know? Yeah, sure. You yeah. know, uh, casually. Whereas now I hope we would go... Oh, no, you know, perhaps calling something retarded mm. in that way is like an offensive thing to do. Things change all the time, you mm. know, and we'd be dis I, I don't want to hopefully ever become one of those, like, you know, you see it a bit where people eventually, they, because things have changed, they complain about things changing, you know, political mm. greatness gone mad because they feel embarrassed about something that they used to say. Mm. You know, they're really fighting the fight because they don't want to be feminist now because 20 years ago they, you know, pinched a girl in the ass. Yeah. 
Well, it wasn't great that you did that back then. Yeah. But it's better for you to go, hey, I did this back then. Yeah. But I now and would never do up. this sure. now. And like, I know who's better now yeah. than I do now than going, no, 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 you should be, you still <laughs> should be able to pinch people in the yeah, arse. Like, yeah. And I think often you know, we see people defend ideas yeah. like that because they're worried about how, what they used to be like, as opposed to going, that's fine. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm sure I've said, well, I, I know that I've made jokes over the years that I would never make mm. today. I, I used to have this joke about, and it was a good joke, but about uh, when they blew up the Canberra hospital mm-hmm. and it, it, a bit of uh, ricochet, you know, they blew it up in Canberra, it, you know, demolished it. And then um, a, a bit of it flew out and actually killed a kid. And I used to have a joke about that. And like in like now I would never like make a joke about a real life thing where like a child mm. died in this thing. But at the time I used to have this whole routine about, you know, because they had 20,000 people or whatever there to see them blow up the hospital. And I was like, I had this whole bit about like, you can imagine the organizers like, yeah, this is amazing. We've got 20,000 people here to see us blow up a hospital. Three, two, one, boom. Hang on. What, what, what? Oh shit. We've got to get that kid to the nearest. Oh, Fuck. You know, like that was that's a good joke, right? That's not a bad joke. Did it like, kill? Used to kill, you know. <laughs> well, that killed as well. Yeah. You know, but the point being that like now that's just not the sort of joke of course, that I would yeah. bring to the table because I'd be like, the kid died in this joke. Yeah. Like I never used to talk about the kid dying. Yeah. I used to say, I used to lie. I used to change it. I say that a bit of wreckage flew out and hit someone, but but I just don't know if I'd make that joke. Today. Yeah. And I, and there'd be a myriad of other examples along the way. I think that you know, we've seen a real understanding these days from, you know, there used to be, I don't think that I was particularly guilty of this trope myself, but it doesn't mean that there isn't other versions of this that I haven't been guilty mm. of, which is that idea of um, the, the most easiest way to describe it is I'm pro-gay rights. Of course gay people should be in the army. If mm. gay people are in the army horrendous gay stereotype. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, sure, you know, yeah. Like, you know, I'm trying to be positive, but every bit of my act out of this is like, you know, is is horrible and yeah. offensive or yeah. whatever, you know. Yeah. So you hope that you, you know, come to have a greater understanding yeah. of, you know, and so I don't mind that. I don't mind often. In fact, it, it's, it's, it's been kind of a theme of my work ongoing and this is one of the advantages of doing yearly shows is quite often I'll, you know, go, hey, remember when I used to say this or when I used to believe this? Now I kind of... Don't. Don't. Yeah. Or, or, you know, religion's a really good one. Like, my attitude to religion is so different to what it was when I was, say, in my mid-20s to, you know, early 30s mm. where I was much more strident about, you know, my non-belief in religion and the kind of, um, you know, horrible down, you know, flaws, the flaws in, in, you know, organised religion you know, in a way that I'm much less judgmental and much more interested now in, you know, if I'm going to talk about religion, exploring it in a more complex and nuanced way than Mm. than that, even though my beliefs haven't changed, as in like I still don't believe and I still have major problems with these things, but the way that I approach those things is in a very different way to say I would have a decade ago. Mm. What about what's happening with The Simpsons? Have you seen all the controversy with the poo? Like Hank Azaria was just on Colbert and basically said, I would be happy to step aside and have someone else come in and voice a poo. I saw it. I thought it was it was a very interesting it's a very interesting topic, that one. Mm. Um I think mostly in these sort of situations, like if you are not the person affected, because I I mean I retweeted that 
uh, him speaking about it because yeah. I thought it was good. And Hari, I've worked with a few times, who was yeah. the guy who made the documentary. The problem with the poo, yeah. Problem with the poo. And I have loved that character on The Simpsons. Uh, and I never really thought of it as being mm. a particularly negative stereotype, like a beloved character, you know. Like, mm. so I can understand as like a white person, you know, the you know, you know a yellow person, as it would <laughs> be in the Simpsons <laughs> yeah, world. But, yeah. but you know, the predominant sort of culture, yeah, never even considered it to be a, like it wasn't like, and it didn't feel like a negative stereotype, yeah. right? It felt like a beloved character, but. Hearing somebody who looked like that and grew up in a world where that was the person of their color mm. and, you know, whatever that people were seeing and the only example of that, you know. Mm. I think in those situations, you've always got to listen to the person who totally. whose life experience it is. And I thought that was what was really good about what Hank said, which was like he seems to have come to a great – because I think a lot of things can be true at the same time. I think that Hank Azaria could have, you know, I don't think that like he's some sort of racist or he's been doing some racist like mm. voice or anything like that. And I don't think Harry thinks that either, by the way. I think that The Simpsons has been on for a very long time and the world has changed a lot in that time. And, yeah. you know, by the nature of that, then sometimes the context of what you're making changes as well. Um, I think it's one of those things that sometimes you don't know something's a problem until... It's a problem. Mm. You know, something can not be a problem for a very long time and it can become problematic. And then you get to the point where you're like, well, how problematic is this? Yeah. Right? Do we not show the episodes of Faulty Towers that use the N-word? Oh, yeah. The What's his name? What's, the, the, the mayor? Major. Major. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Yeah. And, Jesus. and it's not oh. just that. If you go over a lot of comedy, you're yeah. going to find things that contextually are very different to what we are now. I think that's yeah, good that things are... Uh, it's very. I mean, this Simpsons, this is a really interesting one. And I mm. thought that what Hank said was, was really good, which was the first step is always that if you're not represented in the writer's room, right? Yeah. In the creation room, then you're just never going to hear that. Right? Yeah. The reason that none of us knew there was a problem with Abu was there was no, there was no one know, to tell us. Indian writers yeah. in the Simpsons room, or like not enough mm. that there was a you know enough to go, hey, you know maybe we could, and that's what tends to be you know the response I got from a few people online was like, oh snowflake, why leave the house? And you're like, well no no no, no. because if the only white guy who or the only Australian, you know. We've seen it, right? Mm. Even Australians represented sometimes in American culture. Sure, you can yeah. see how broadly offensive their stereotypes of who we are can be. Imagine if that was the only, yeah, if a poo was the only person that you totally, saw yeah. who was of your color and whatever on, on television and they were being voiced by a white person, mm. you know, putting this on. It wasn't even a job that a, you know, an Indian person had to do. I can see this from all those sides. And yeah. I think that's the best way to discuss these things is as if two things can be true at the same time you discuss and you move forward it's the same thing like it's that can just go on a cycle too because you know hank has famously said that his voice of a poo was inspired by peter seller's character in the party right another iconic comedian white guy doing an indian character right but in real life so it's much more uncomfortable right 
And the party's, yeah, the party's considered what? One of the best comedies of all time. But if you look at a lot of that stuff, comic comedy in particular, it does not age well traditionally. Mm. And my thinking behind that is pretty simple, which is that comedy at its best often is reflective of the times, right? It mm. says something about the culture in which it's created. Mm. So if the culture changes, then of course the comedy seems out of place. Mm. Makes sense, right? Mm. If the comedy is really summing up that time and place in whatever form it was, and then that time and place becomes something else, you know, moves on to something else, then of course the comedy will be outdated. Yeah. Of course Eddie Murphy said things on his special that you wouldn't say if he was making a special today. And that's good. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it was, I mean, it was probably bad at the time too. Yeah, yeah. In retrospect, but he didn't know it was bad at the time. Yeah. We didn't know. Um, I think we have to be, like, yeah, there's this new sort of trend, which is like, we watch Friends and look at all these problematic things that happen in Friends. Mm. And you're like, well, let's look at that as an example of also how much we've changed. Yeah. Like, let's, the fact that things are, if you, when you look back on all these older things, they're problematic. Yeah is a great example of how well we're doing at changing things as well, yeah. right? Yeah. The more that those old things seem foreign and seem problematic dated, is yeah. probably a more, is actually what perhaps we can concentrate on a little bit more is, yes, that's what things were like, but the reason that we're finding them so confronting now is things are not like that anymore or they're moving towards a place that is yeah. not like that as much. And I think that's, in general, a very positive thing. I'm not one of those people who, you know, believes in this whole, you know, you can't say, like, you know, you hear it all the time. And, yeah. Yeah, you know, I can't say anything anymore. Comedy must be hard or political correctness. Gone. I don't believe that. I believe that it's like, it's just a different challenge and it's a better challenge. And if the challenge is to make better work and not be picking on those who don't deserve to be picked on, you mm. know, saying, you know, you know, I'm punching up versus punching down is not, a perfect comedy premise because sometimes there is some great fun in punching down or across or punching yourself in the head. You know, it's not a, but as a general kind of principle, if you go, am I punching up or punching down? It still is a pretty good way to kind of, you know, looking at, to look at what's going on. Can you still appreciate someone's work who may later on where I'm going with this Bill Cosby? Can you, can you watch Bill Cosby's comedy and still appreciate it for what it is? Or is that guy just tarnished you now? Uh, um, interesting question. I, I think I would probably answer it like this. I just wouldn't watch it again. Yeah. Because of what he's done is so hideously offensive to mm. me, then I wouldn't seek it out to watch. Yeah. Um, I saw Bill Cosby live about three years before the revelations came out. Yeah. And he was funny then. <laughs> That's what I'll tell you. Yeah. So before I knew that, yeah, you know, all this stuff, it was funny then. Uh, I do not think that I would be able to go back and, but again, there's levels of that, right? I don't think that I could ever watch anything that Bill Cosby has ever done ever again, or listen to anything that he's ever done again. In the same way as I wouldn't listen to Charles Charles Manson's music or whatever. Like, yeah, you know, these are horrible horrible people and i don't think they should be celebrated and i even if they were the greatest artist in the world i don't care sure you're a fucking serial rapist and you do not deserve i don't care if you're fucking attention da vinci or fucking michelangelo or whatever i don't give a shit Mm. fuck off yeah you're dead to me you know yeah um 
But the truth of it is that at some stage, probably in the future, Louis C.K. will do something else and I'll probably look at it, mm. you know, because in my mind, I'll go, oh, well, you know, like, you know, he, what he did was terrible, but he's been away for five years and he's been adequately punished. Yeah. And I like Louis enough and I'm interested enough to see what he does to well, invest back in. So the, the, I don't have a hard and a fast rule on that, but I yeah. think there's a fair difference. It's not to excuse what Louis did in any way, because I think that's, you know, inappropriate as well. And, and, um, but, but there can also be degrees of those things. Yeah, because I mean, it is what you said earlier. Like, I don't want to, again, I'm not trying to defend what Louis did, but I think what's different with someone, what Louis did compared to someone like a Cosby, who to this day still denies it all, Louis came out and said, yes, this happened. Yes, this is fucked up. And we haven't heard from him since. I mean, eventually. Yes, yeah, but he yeah. went away. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And again, it, like, I think that, you know, you always stumble around in an area like this because you don't want to be seen to be excusing any of, course, of it. Yeah. And I'm not. And I also need to put it on the record and I think we'd be better off having this conversation if we all acknowledge that particularly with men we've been raised in a system where we have probably all at some stage done something that is a result of the system that we were raised in Mm. whether it be high school boys you know making a list of girls they want to fuck at school Mm. or like you know spreading a rumor about someone that they shouldn't have to boost their own ego or yeah. yeah, calling a girl a name behind her back to impress your mates because that's what, you know, the way that men talk to each other or ignoring that guy in an office situation who's clearly, you know, a bit too handsy at work because yeah. you don't want to cause trouble or, you know, you know, being in that conversation where somebody's complaining about a woman being trouble when she's actually just, you know, doing something we'd applaud a man for doing in the same situation or, you know, behaving in a way that, was more about how you society had taught you men were meant to behave rather than how you actually perhaps would have behaved if, you know, I think that that idea of, you know, that toxic masculinity being as harmful to men as it, well, not as harmful, but being also harmful to men mm. uh, is is important to remember. And I think that when we're talking about these things that, you know, look, I mean, there's, there's been a whole bunch of things over my life that if I had my time again, I would, you know, do in a different way. And the only thing you can really do is, you know, look at that and go, well, how am I going to behave from Learn and move now forward. on? Yeah. And, you know, next time one of those conversations happening or next time, you know, uh, look, you know, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. It was like, I was just raised, for example, that you just kissed women and shook men's hands, right? Mm. Now, I know that's not, true or the case and I've been aware of that for decades and I would consider myself to be a person that you know now has an awareness of that and literally this morning I went into the studio at Triple M to do the grill team and I shook Maddie Johns's hand Gus Warland and I kind of held hands because his hand was around it you know like you know that just yeah, held, yeah, yeah. held hands to yeah. say hello uh and I gave Matt no I gave Maddie a hug and I held Gus's hand and I kissed Emma Friedman on the show. Now, I think because also she, like, I mean, but it wasn't, that's just programming. Yeah. That's just societal programming. And I, by the way, I don't, like, we're friends. I don't think that was, she was uncomfortable <laughs> with that. I, like, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. But, but at the same time, why? Why didn't I just greet them all in the sure. exact same way as yeah. each other? Because so much of that stuff has just been programmed into you yeah sometimes in ways that you don't even realize so sometimes you're you know 
like you know that idea of like you know i mean i grew up in an era where like oh, women they're crazy yeah like the idea that you know the, the language was like oh these women are crazy no they're just looking at something in a way that is different to the way we look at yeah. something that doesn't make them crazy it doesn't yeah. make them delusional it doesn't make these little bits of language around these things like some of them i probably will be you know I, that i still constantly you know after all this time and I'm a professional communicator and I think about these things all the time. But I think it's really important to A, not set yourself as as being some moral arbiter of these things. Mm. Secondly, to put yourself on some pedestal where like you like, are saying, well, I've never done any of this. I've done all of this. Mm. Like not all of it. But, like, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like yeah, of course, some yeah. degree of all of it. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even saying that there won't be times when clearly from this morning's example where – those bits of pro- sometimes you have to fight against the program yeah, totally. inside you, and I think it's important to d- keep trying to do that. Mm. I think it's the only way you learn. Yeah, mm. it's really interesting. I mean, I I know you have to go because you've got you've got I more do. interviews, don't you? I do have more interviews. That's okay. That's well, look. Oh um, yes, I definitely have. <laughs> okay. Well, yes. <laughs> thanks so much for coming by, man. Really appreciate it. Good luck That's with right. the new season of Gruen. May second, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. nailed that. Thank yeah, you, May second and ten weeks uh, on from there, and then that's that's it. And then maybe it forever. Who knows? And then you, well, no, don't say that. Well, I, don't know. I say that. <laughs> I say that every year. Yeah. I, sign, I sign a contract one year at a time. <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> and then you got Will Eagle in Canberra next month, and I think you're back at the Opera House in October. That's just uh, weird scheduling, but that's cool. No, well, that's Opera House is hard to get the exact dates that sure. you want. So. Um, some of that was because we couldn't get a date during Gruen, I think. And yep. then, then I go away mid-year overseas, do some overseas stuff. So it needed to be after I got back. But it's also, I quite like it because it then means that I have one of the big Australian shows that I can keep kind of totally. working on the show to work towards. Yep. So, so Sydney isn't necessarily, last year it was early on in the tour. I think I did... Sydney, like in my first week in Melbourne. So I was probably only like 10, 15 shows in, whereas like Sydney this year, I'll be like, you know, 80, 100 shows yeah. in. So it's just very different. Like I like mixing up sure. different places at different times. Yeah. Adelaide always gets the new show, but other than that, I like to mix it up a bit. Well, cool. Dude, thanks so much for getting coming by. My pleasure. Um, good luck with Gruen. Good luck with Legal. And um, yeah, we'll see you soon. Thank you.